Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, Vinod Kausla, founder of Kausla Ventures, and Sean O'Sullivan, managing general partner and founder of SOSV, discuss the time it takes for climate tech investments to mature and the potential for exponential growth in the future. Vinod Kausla emphasizes the importance of focusing on major areas of carbon reduction and advises founders and investors to tackle large problems in the climate space and be patient. They discuss various technologies and approaches, including fusion, geothermal, and AI, and express optimism about the potential for impact. So Vinod, welcome. I want to thank you for your leadership in the climate investment space. Coastal Ventures has been super active for a very long time in this area. And I think actually SOSV and, and COSLA have done around eight deals together already with more on the way. So thank you so much for your leadership in this space. And I'd like to ask in my first question, you have been investing in climate and planetary health for more than 15 years. How does the climate tech investing look today compared to, say, a decade ago? Other than there's a lot more interest today, uh, what happened a decade ago? Uh, and I get asked the question now, was climate 1.0 a failure? I don't believe it was. If you look at a company like QuantumScape, when you started early, uh, it took a long time. And if you were patient and stayed with it, you have pretty good returns, even at today's public market prices. It's a multi-billion dollar company, and that's exciting. Something like Lanzatech for sustainable aviation fuel is a really exciting company, public company. I forget its recent valuation, but it is well above a billion, probably closer to two. So people who sustained through this long period and kept with it have very good returns, multiples of five, 10, 20 times. Impossible Foods was the same way. Um, and many other less well-known names uh, have, are in the same category. Uh, so I would say, in general, there's enough of a set of companies um, that have produced pretty good returns, 10x or more multiples. Um, what was Calera is now three different companies all doing well. Mainspring is doing extremely well. So there's a lot of companies that survived yeah. if you stayed with it. So you're describing how it can take 10 years to be an overnight success uh, in the technology industry, and in particular, I think, in climate. But today, what, what do you think there's any differences, or is it's really the same game that we're playing today? And, and it'll, it'll take a while for those companies to mature into billion-dollar behemoths. You know, you have to separate investments in major areas of carbon reduction from minor areas. In the major areas, uh, I think the rules are the same. Uh, not a lot has changed. It's very technology intensive and it takes a while. So something like carbon fusion, where we were in the seed round and have played multiple rounds since fairly aggressively, um, 
it will take a dozen years to get to any kind of uh, liquidity or returns. Um, you know, we have two fusion investments, Commonwealth Fusion and more recently Rialta. Uh, we have two steel projects, uh, very unusual approaches to steel, so they will take time. Um, the Verdeji is a hydrogen project. Uh, Spiritus, we just announced a direct air capture project. I expect all of these, because they involve going through two, three-year cycles of building or uh, developing the technology, then a similar cycle of developing pilot plants, and then the first plant, and then scaling. Uh, it ends up being a dozen years, no matter how you look at it. There's a few exceptions, and we're pretty excited about the exceptions, but the major areas generally will take time. And, uh, and the, what you, you're talking about a, a number of major categories in the energy production and, and direct air capture and, and all sorts of other forms of carbon decarbonization. How has the investment categories changed from now versus, say, you know, the, the beginning days, 10, 15 years ago? Or is it really... Um, is it just working its way down the food chain to a, a wider range of solutions or, or what, Look, what sort of areas are you thinking are most promising for investing in right today? So uh, I think it was July of 21. I wrote a blog that there's a dozen areas of deep technology, which are all the large emitters that matter. And most of the areas don't matter. They can help, and I call them minor climate investments, so building efficiency. To me, a very minor climate investment, not really massive technology differences. But agriculture is a big area. Um, we had Impossible Foods. We had some other food companies then. Today, we're trying to replace soy as a major source of protein on the planet with a company called Leaf in New Zealand. We're trying to produce fertilizer differently, nitricity. Um, so the areas remain the same because they are the areas that emit lots of carbon. Uh, the approaches might be different. The market approaches and what's viable now to invest in uh, maybe slightly different. Steel wasn't an area we spent time on 15 years ago. Today we have two projects since steel. Uh, 15 years ago, I didn't see a lot of approaches to direct air capture. Uh, I'm now starting to see approaches, and they've been around, uh, but none of them are deep technology efforts that get to very low prices, like $50 a ten ton or less for direct air capture. Uh, so so I, I do think the categories are the same. Um, the, the problems are the same because they're problems from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, the solutions may be slightly different. Are there no categories you've really completely soured on or where the time has passed, either because of disappointments in the technology or just the inadequate contributions uh, to decarbonization? You know, there are clearly shifts. So biofuels, uh, uh, you know, we had invested in QuantumScape in the EV space and we had invested in a couple of companies like Lanza, and Amaris, which has gone bankrupt uh, in the biofuel space. Uh, land transportation, I think, today, uh, electric vehicles will win. 
whether it's trucks or uh, uh, private cars. Uh, but Lanzatac, I think, still has a major opportunity in aviation fuel, which most likely will be a compatible jet fuel, compatible liquid fuel. Very cool. So, so the biofuels have shifted in what is the target market, for example. So have I sold on it? No. So uh, the impact of climate change has become visible for everyone to see in their daily lives and on the nightly news. But it hasn't been obvious that climate tech VC investing has made that strong of a difference yet. So how long does it take or will it take for one or more of these investments in these new companies to reduce billions or tens of billions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions and make a noticeable change? How patient do we have to be? Let me step back a little and say the opportunity today in venture capital is much, much larger for the following unusual reason. As unfortunate as Ukraine has been and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, and it, it has really started and committed the world to an energy transition, which was inconceivable two or three years ago, at least at the pace at which it is happening. If you said to me three years ago, Russia, Germany can be independent of Russian gas in two or three years, I would have said you're dreaming. That's very much in process. So I do think uh, the energy transition has accelerated um, the other major event of the last couple of years was COVID, and it has accelerated the transition out of China. And so both those have created a major venture opportunity for the next 20 years. Uh, and they will both be driven by serious technology. Um, add to that IRA in the U.S. and the Net Zero Act in Europe, and we have a pretty amazing opportunity. But to your question of when will we have decisive impact, these things uh, you have to think of as taking a while to develop the technology, and then it'll be exponential. Mm. So most people are optimistic about 2030. I think we'll start to deploy these technologies by 2030, and by the mid-40s, uh, maybe before 2050, I think we will complete... <laughs> excuse me, complete the transition in a uh, more aggressive way than people imagine. So exponentials start slow, but they accelerate. I'm fairly convinced in the 2040s, we will replace every coal and natural gas plant in the U.S. with clean energy, uh, probably from either fusion or geothermal. So... These changes, you're thinking that people's focus on the 2030 milestones is is just incorrect because of the exponential nature of how technology is adapted and how it improves uh, at that scale. Is that is that fair to say? I think that's more than fair to say. I think it's worse than that. If people focus on 2030, we will deploy today's technologies, which is a bad idea because they won't scale and they won't scale economically and hence won't scale globally. For example, direct air capture, you were speaking about just a moment ago, really having a target of 50 bucks a, a ton for direct air capture or less even uh, versus hundreds of dollars a ton, which would be, 
actually really deleterious for the economy, you know, it, you know, it would be quite devastating. I think at $200 a ton, which is almost all the technologies that are being piloted today at any kind of scale, uh, will not be scalable and obviously not adapted in places like India, China, Africa. Mm. And it needs to be adapted in all those areas. So we need to develop technologies that have a great trajectory, not just technologies that are ready to be deployed today. This is a common misperception Oh, wind and solar is cheaper than uh, regular electricity. Not so. That is bullshit. Uh, you don't want electricity when the sun's shining or the wind's blowing. Uh, you want your electricity when the 49ers game is on tonight. Um, and the microwave uh, is, is uh, heating up the popcorn and, and, the, and the chicken. Yes. <laughs> so uh, on-demand dispatchable electricity is a key requirement. That comes from either very large storage, and I'm optimistic on battery storage too. Yeah. But fusion uh, will be cheap, scalable power, uh, as will geothermal if we get that right. And geothermal today is, is toys. Almost every geothermal startup is a toy, unless we can get to four to 500 degree temperature geothermal, which is available in 100x more locations than geothermal today, 100x. Mm. If we drill to those temperatures, which means drilling to greater depth than we drill today. That's a technology problem. And we solve that. We can drill right around under almost every coal plant, especially in the Western United States, and produce heat right there under the coal plant. So you don't need to use the coal at all to get the heat? Nope. The power that turns and you can repurpose those plants. You know, and that brings up another point. We are generally focusing on technologies that can be deployed. So I mentioned sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, we haven't invested in hydrogen aircraft. Uh, electric may work for very short haul, but not long haul aircraft, which is most of the carbon emissions. To solve that, you're not going to obsolete the trillions of dollars of aircraft with 50-year life out there. You'll want a jet fuel compatible uh, fuel. And hence, things like Lanzatech we are excited about because they use existing plants. In something like cement, we are trying to repurpose today's plants. Fortera, which was a spin-out out of Calera, is developing a plant and the first pilot plant should come online in the next six months um, at an existing cement plant. If that works, it'll repurpose existing cement plants, make them greener, not make them enemies because you're replacing them, you are enhancing them. Same thing with fusion. My view of fusion, for example, is not to build fusion power plants that takes too long but to build fusion boilers that can go into existing coal plants or natural gas plants. That's mm -hmm. how you create exponentials and rapid growth. So my hope is we just build fusion boilers. By the way, in the 10 years before the Second World War, we built uh, maybe five or 10 Liberty warships. In the five years after the start of the war, we built 5,000 of them. Yeah. And I think a fusion boiler... Uh, will be easier to build than a Liberty warship 
and you should be able to replace every boiler in every coal and natural gas plant within five to 10 years. That's why I'm optimistic. Once we get the technology right, if we get it right, there is always a risk. We don't. Uh, It'll be rapid. And it'll be economic. You're mentioning fusion there, but uh, that would apply to fission as well, wouldn't it? Or are you looking at those areas where you think fission is not, not, not as big of a runner as fusion is? Well, my problem with fission, uh, I like fission. We invested in TerraPower. Uh, the problem is with fission, it'll take longer to permit a one single power plant mm-hmm. and its exit temperatures aren't quite compatible with coal uh, boilers mm-hmm. uh, and con- exit steam conditions. Uh, so the permitting cycle and the NIMBY stuff is so bad it's easier and faster to develop fusion technology than even permit a single plant, in my view. Well, so far in this discussion, you've been talking about taking carbon out of the air by deploying biology, chemistry, physics, and, and mechanical systems to do so. But what if we look for a second at one of your, your famous investments, you've done famously well with your investment in open AI. Do you think that AI has a role to play and you know, and is it too early to know if there there's a role to play in 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 the uh, decarbonization question, or what do you think the short term and long term contributions of AI could be? So, let me uh, answer the following way. Uh, I think about I think last year I looked at uh, the NeuroEPS, which is the big AI conference, uh, technical conference, and looked at AI in climate papers. Not one of them was material in my view. So I hate to give you the bad news. Mm-hmm. There was no material work. It was uh, frills on the margin um, and pretending AI can help. Mm-hmm. Having said that, if you use AI to design new materials or new surfaces to do direct air capture, uh, it could make a huge difference. Uh, if you design... Um, better battery materials with AI. But I haven't seen those efforts. Uh, And whether AI helps there or quantum computing helps there, it's very hard to tell. But frankly, if you look at the dozen problems I defined, and those are the only ones that really matter, everything else is small reductions in carbon uh, if applied globally and generally uneconomic. And I keep coming back to economics and we should talk about that. But... I'm generally pretty optimistic. I think we can replace every coal plant uh, in the country, in the U.S., and then hopefully in the world, but well before 2050, every coal and natural gas plant. I believe we can convert all the vehicles to EVs. Uh, I'm very, very excited about the new public transit system we've invested in, which I think can replace most cars in most cities, so we may not even need a lot of EVs. Um, uh, I'm pretty optimistic about that. An area where AI can help a lot. Uh, I predicted uh, probably a few months ago that over the next decade or two decades, we will discover more rare resources that we are think we are short of, like lithium or cobalt. We will discover more resources than we will use 
in the next decade or two. And already one of the largest discoveries in the U.S. has been found, a large discovery in India since I made that forecast. So I'm pretty sure we can replace all coal plants. We can have plenty of lithium and cobalt and other minerals that we need for this energy transition through new discovery. And those are new sensing technologies, uh, new approaches, uh, even geologic hydrogen is a really interesting possibility. Uh, Hyperspectral imaging of the planet, look for geological hydrogen is a pretty interesting idea. I love um, you talking about all these areas? really deep tech, you know, uh, approaches. It's not just going to be software doing this. It requires a physical change to the physical world. And so, oh, absolutely, you know, our steel projects that you use, they're trying to produce steel using lasers. Very unusual approach. We have two such efforts. Um, and, nobody else that I know of so, is working on. By doing so, it takes out the smelting process, so it decarbonizes the outputs, or how does well, it? So, yeah. How? It, 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 you know, without going into a lot of details, uh, there's a reduct- reduction process. And you still need hydrogen for that. But uh, you all carry away the oxygen in the uh, iron ore. Uh, but there's a lot of heating and other use of energy that could come from lasers um, in many ways. Um, so that's very, very exciting. Um, so. I'm very, very excited. Uh, I'm pretty convinced we can replace all the protein in, on this planet much more efficiently than soy protein or corn protein, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a project working on that. Uh, one of my favorite things is producing fertilizer out of thin air. We're yeah. using plasma to turn nitrogen in the air and water in the air into nitric acid, which is a fertilizer. And nitrogen is, is the most, uh, you know, everybody thinks it's carbon dioxide or oxygen or something, but it's actually the most prevalent uh, prevalent uh, molecule yeah, there is. So, yeah, my point through these examples is creativity knows no bounds. Yeah. Um, and when I make ridiculous forecasts, like maybe you can replace most cars in most cities by 2050, I actually have a method behind that, that I'm happy to detail any of these. Proteins, <laughs> public transit, to that is far superior to owning a car. Yeah, um, our public transit system, for example, is on demand like Uber, so no schedule. When you want it, it shows up. It's point to point. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at traffic lights. So it's faster than a car or an Uber, I and cheaper it. than all of those. Let me let me yeah. ask you about climate change. It's it's characterized by the the term the tragedy of the commons. Sometimes where overuse of the commons by individual parties seems to make sense to each individual individually, but leads to everyone being damaged by an unusable shared asset. So. Geopolitically, what do you think of the biggest emitters, either sector-wise or, or, or nation-state-wise, you know, and who concerns you the most? How you measure it will determine what ends up at the top of the list. There's a very good book I refer people to called Drawdown, and you can look at it. So whether air conditioning emissions are from air conditioning or the electricity production, you know, you can classify things anyway, So, and those are semantics. But Drawdown is a good book to look at and what are all the sources. 
in the problems that need to be solved. Uh, in my 2021 blog, I referred to, which uh, argued that we only need a dozen instigators of large change in these dozen areas. We don't need 10,000 people to be successful, just a dozen. Elon Musk changed EVs. He was the instigator in that area. Bob Mumgard is the instigator in fusion. Uh, Pat Brown was the instigator at Impossible Foods and plant proteins. Uh, there are only a dozen areas, and hence we only need a dozen motivated entrepreneurs, which are probably in your audience there, uh, to make this large change. But it is, to your question, a tragedy of the commons. Um, but I think the major emitters in the world, um, you know, it was the West, um, but China and India rapidly growing, uh, are all going to help for uh, look for these solutions. Why? Because they often will be more economic in international trade without uh, with high carbon products will become harder and harder. And so I do think there's some common ground to be had uh, beyond the tragedy of the commons uh, uh, to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's well known who the emitters are and why it's increasing. There's all kinds of complexity on how much quota everybody should have. Should it be per nation and reductions from which levels? You know, reductions from 1990 levels you know, certain countries like India had almost nothing. Right. In a cumulative per capita allocation of carbon uh, for every person, uh, countries with uh, large population should have larger quotas than countries with small. So I won't go into that debate, but I just want to convey this is a solvable problem. If fusion works, it'll be cheaper electricity than coal and natural gas and less local emissions. If EVs work, I think we'll have a lower cost of transportation, especially if we go to our model of public transit replacing cars. Uh, it's going to spread like a wildfire. These will be exponential adoptions. And the costs have to be, costs have to be affordable enough for all of the world's population to be able to take advantage of it. Because as you said earlier, if direct air carbon, uh, direct air capture is, is too expensive, the, the more less developed countries or the less rich countries won't be able to afford to do it at all. Yeah. I, the, the, here's what I would say. All these new technologies, when they're small scale, their costs are higher than uh, uh, their fossil competitors. Bill Gates calls that the green premium you have to pay. Mm-hmm. But they have to be technologies necessarily, and the only ones we should support are the ones that as they scale in size, their costs decline rapidly. And so declining costs with scale is a key characteristic of a good climate technology. And in the end, at scale, let's say 5% penetration of a market, and the first 5% could be subsidized, but well before it's 10%, it should be cheaper than its fossil competitor. I call that the Chindia price. The price at which everybody in India and China and Africa will adapt these technologies uh, is the price at which they will grow exponentially uh, because they'll grow for, 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 
because they meet the laws of economic gravity and not defy the laws of economic gravity, as I put it. Yeah, (laughs) that that, that works. I mean, especially if if you have electricity being much more expensive in a place where you're using direct air capture or something like that at a much higher cost, then you're also driving those economies in the more developed countries to a big disadvantage, which you can't do if you're going to Yes. If, if you're going to have a level playing field for everybody. So we, we have to work on cost. We have to work on availability and scalability. But now sort of to wrap this up, we only have a few minutes left. I'd love to ask you uh, how to, you know, uh, an advice, a piece of advice. Is there a piece of advice you'd give to any founder in deep tech startups? I know every founder is different. Every founder has a different circumstance. But what what uh, general uh, piece of advice do you think you could give? You know, pick a large problem. I find 80% of what I call climate startups, maybe 70%, I don't have a precise number, but most of the climate startups are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, works, working on things that might make a marginal difference to climate. There's a dozen large problems that I defined in my blog, and they're the ones to work on. And almost all of them take deep technology, R&D, expertise, and funding patiently and over the long haul. Uh, You know, we probably have till 2020, uh, 2030 or 2035 to develop these technologies, and then 15 years to exponentially scale them to get to net zero by 2050, which I'm generally optimistic about. Uh, There are so many opportunities. Um, And so I'm pretty optimistic we can do it. Um, So that- Building construction, we are doing low carbon cement, we are doing 3D printed housing with photopolymers. Um, There's so much opportunity. We are doing biomining, it's unlimited, unlimited opportunity for, for founders who can tackle really, really important problems. We'll include uh, that link, uh, uh, you know, to your to your blog post when we air this uh, uh, as we air this piece. And uh, I, I, and I noticed also that the advice that you are giving to the founders in deep tech startups is pretty similar advice that you're giving effectively to the VCs that are in this space right now as well in terms of that long-term perspective and the length of time and the you know the urgency to tackle real problems real big problems uh, is there any other advice you could give to VCs or other investors uh, tuned in uh, on how to invest in climate you know the venture business uh, is a high risk business but also a high reward business. You can only lose one times your money. And in climate especially, it's true in a few other areas, biotechnology is exactly like climate. It takes 10 or 15 years to develop a product. And in that cycle, you will have multiple great cycles in the investing environment and multiple bad cycles because it takes so long. And the key and why Climate 1.0 really worked for us with Lanzatech and QuantumScape and Impossible and Mainspring <coughs> and the spin-offs from Calera, uh, why we did fine is because we were patient and didn't give up on things mostly. 
a few things we had to try, triage when no funding was available. But by and large, good guidance from VCs and patient guidance in the long-term view will help a lot. And investors should take that view and entrepreneurs should be hugely selective about who they work with. Well, thank you so much, Vinod, for your for your words of confidence and your your vision uh, and your your persistence in this area. It's been f- fantastic. It, it is always fantastic to work with you or other members of your team on, on boards that we're on. And uh, we we are delighted to have you on this uh, show today. Thank you so much for, for, for appearing. Well, thank you. And it's very, very rewarding to work on large problems. If there's no problem, th- there's not a lot of money to be made and no large solutions to be had, impactful <laughs> solutions to be had. That's right. Thank you. Go, go for the gusto. All right. Thanks so much for note. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.